Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Social Science Fiction. After a long hiatus, I am very glad to be back with new episodes and thrilled for my first week back to have a very special guest on to talk about the politics of Star Wars. And so without further ado, let's just get to it. This is Social Science Fiction. So now, I am absolutely thrilled to have a special guest with me on the show today. I am very happy to welcome Stephen Kent, host of the Beltway Banthas podcast, as well as right now with Stephen Kent on YouTube, also the author of the upcoming book, How the Force Can Fix the World. Stephen, thank you so much for sitting down and talking with me today. Stephen Michaels, hello, nice to be here. Very glad to have you here. We do very similar stuff. We have shows that very much intersect in terms of subject matter. You're much more of a specialist than me. I refuse to commit to any one thing. We it's both love. <laughs> <laughs> but we both do the sci-fi and the politics stuff. So happy to talk to you about the politics of Star Wars today. Talk to you about your show a little bit more. And so I kind of want to start with that. Can you tell me about? And I'm sure. Anyone listening to me knows if you're out there listening, I, if, unless you're my mother, I don't know how you know my show, but don't know Stephen Kent's show. You must know his show if you're listening to me. But uh, Stephen, why don't you tell us a little bit about the Beltway Banthas and how that got started? Yeah, so the Beltway Banthas podcast is still, as far as I know, the only podcast that tackles the intersection of Star Wars and politics on a regular basis. I think as any Star Wars fan knows, there's a political element to the franchise, there's a political element to the story. But there's not a, a podcast that regularly is just sort of talking about what those things are, breaking them down week by week, breaking down how the Senate works, where did the First Order come from, how did the New Republic differ from the Old Republic? but then also talking about how Star Wars impacts the world in which we live. I wanted to do the podcast in particular because I listen to a lot of political programming and political shows just always come back to Star Wars. And that's because a lot of the way that we talk about morality, good versus bad in American life, is framed around Star Wars. We, we call people that are not on our side. They've, got, they've gone over to the dark side. <laughs> Why is that? Why do we sort of talk about like political mentors and political upstarts as like master and apprentice? I remember this came up in the news when Marco Rubio was running for the presidential nomination and he was going up against Jeb Bush, an old mentor of his. And MSNBC, they were making jokes about how the, the apprentice was going to throw down the master. And I remember hearing that in 2016 and going, Star Wars is just like really woven into all the ways in which we talk in American life. It's just that kind of franchise. So that's what the Beltway Banthas podcast is. It's been active since 2016, and we're always looking for new topics to cover at that intersection of politics and Star Wars. That's excellent. And it's remarkable that this one thing has given us this vocabulary 
mm-hmm. we're talking about so many things. And, and you're right. It's become such a part of the culture. I, I can use this terminology. And someone who has never seen Star Wars before, if they live in America, they're probably going to understand the gist of what I'm talking about. It's just such a part of how we talk about things. And especially, yeah, the light side, dark side, it's very much suited to political talk, especially in an age when our politics has become much more partisan, a little more. Yeah. Little, and do you remember, uglier. do you remember Dick Cheney and the Darth Vader flap in the, in the Bush administration? There was an event that he went to and he decided because a lot of the media, or I think maybe even John Stewart had been likening him to the Darth Vader of the Bush administration. <laughs> he walked out to the Darth Vader Imperial March theme song at an event he was speaking at by his choosing just to, I guess, thumb his nose at his critics. You know, <laughs> Star Wars is just, it's part of American life. <laughs> However you feel about the Bush administration, the Bush years, they did seem to be good at kind of embracing a lot of the criticism people hurled at them. Kind of, we're going to be these caricatures just in a tongue-in-cheek way. And yeah, Dick Cheney walking out to the Imperial March is exactly that kind I, of thing. I, I always think about, and this goes more to the Trump years, when Kylo Ren says, I'll show you the dark side uh, to Lore Santeca and The Force Awakens, just as a way of being like, you know, he's like, oh, you don't come from the dark side. And he goes, I'll show you the dark side. It's just like, I feel like where we're at in our politics today is both camps going, you think I'm a communist? I'll show you communism. <laughs> <laughs> you think I'm a fascist? I'll show you fascism. And it's just like, we're becoming the cartoons that our enemies always said we were. And it's unfortunate. When I say we, I don't mean me. I mean other people. <laughs> yeah, yes. All, the, all those other bad people People, Those um, other non-libertarians. Other, uh, that, that's right. That's right. It is. Uh, it is lonely to be a libertarian today. You're right. Everybody seems to have embraced a certain caricature, and and I think a lot of libertarians feel very much kind of vindicated. To bring it back to Star Wars, we are the gray Jedi. Yeah. Um, right now, the Bindu. Like, like, yeah. The one in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> yep. That is where we're at right now. How did you first get into Star Wars? Childhood thing like the yeah. like the rest of us? Yeah, and it's I, I don't have a great origin story for it. I just remember loving Star Wars when I was under the age of 10. I loved my action figures. I cherished my episode six Luke toy uh, with the black outfit and the black robe. I played with him endlessly. I don't remember when I fell in love with Star Wars, but I can say that when the prequel trilogy came out, I was 15 when... The Revenge of the Sith hit theaters. And so that was sort of like one of those moments where you go from like being just a standard, oh, I love Star Wars because I'm a kid and I'm a boy, right? Like then like it jumping up from 10 to 11 in terms of my fandom, like I just really became a huge fan by the time Revenge of the Sith was out because I had found my friend group. I was into cosplay. I was old enough to go to the midnight screenings of the movies. So episodes two and three, I was able to go to midnight shows. And those are special memories for me. Those were the things that really crystallized my fandom. And then you go through that sad moment of as soon as the Revenge of the Sith comes out, Star Wars is over. <laughs> and then it's then it's up to you to keep it alive. But obviously that did not end up being the case after about 10 years. So that's mm-hmm. good. So I suspect you kind of answered my next question for me, but I like to ask all Star Wars fans, what is your trilogy? I think we can all appreciate all of them and we like different things about, course, dif- yeah. about, about different eras, but I think all of us or most of us at least have our trilogy the one that's kind of ours maybe it's tied to our childhood or it just has the most stuff we like what is your trilogy 
Yeah, so I think that Star Wars is a unique franchise in that it is very much generational and it's about cross-generational sharing. So, you know, you have like this entire generation of people who grew up in the 80s and the 90s whose Star Wars was the original trilogy because it was shared with them by their parents, by their older brothers. And you sort of form which era of Star Wars is yours based on what memories you cherish. Where were you when you first saw those movies? Who are your friend groups that you like really bonded over the films with? So I think that that is where the bond comes from. And for me, I think I did kind of mention in my last answer, like I knew the original trilogy. I, I saw it sometime in the 90s, but I just don't have a clear memory of when that happened. I just loved it. It was like I became an 11-year-old and I already knew all of Star Wars and I don't remember why. So the prequel trilogy is my trilogy. That was when I came of age as a Star Wars fan. That was when I was able to like it for myself and not just because I was shown it by a parent. And that's when it really became part of who I was. And just the political nature of the prequel trilogy in the years after 9-11 in the start of the Afghanistan and Iraq war and my own political kind of awakening at that time, it all just sort of meshed together to make the prequels very special to me. And like with things that you love, you have tough words for it sometimes (laughs) and you have fair criticisms, but that is the trilogy that I think does mean the most to me. That's very interesting for you, which is very much wrapped up in sort of just a larger coming of age story. Yeah, absolutely. My favorite Star Wars movie out of all, you know, nine, 10, whatever, including the standalones is Return of the Jedi. Like as a standalone piece, I love that movie. And it's because of the glitz, the glamour, it's the it's the lightsaber fight at the end, particularly like red lightsaber versus green. I just really like that combo. I love the redemption and return of Darth Vader turning against the emperor, throwing him down the pit. I love the scenes where Luke is talking to Vader on Endor. I love the space battle in that movie. So that movie just is my favorite one to watch. But the prequel trilogy, it just holds a place in my my heart that I can't really explain beyond that whole thing about nostalgia, right? It just, it takes Mm -hmm. you back to a place that you long to go. And that is being a preteen and early teenager, just hanging with my friends, discussing the fall of Anakin Skywalker. (laughs) So it's really just about feeling. It's interesting. I've been thinking about this as you've been talking. And my trilogy is very much the the original trilogy. For me, that's that's mine. Yeah. That will always be my favorite. But my background is very similar to yours. I think I was 13 when Phantom Menace came out. So it seems like I could have gone the same direction as you. Like I was right at that age where the prequels could have been my trilogy, but I never really made that jump. I remained firmly in original trilogy. And as you're talking, I wonder if it's because I already had a group of friends who I was just a super Star Wars fan with already. We played the collectible card game together. Mm -hmm. It was all about the original trilogy. We had the toy lightsabers and everything. And I wonder if that's a part of it. Just I had my friend group and we were already tied to that original trilogy. And that's where my social memories Yeah, I think socialization is just a really big part of it. Probably next to seeing Revenge of the Sith, at the midnight showing when it first came out with my best friends dressed up in as in our homemade Jedi costumes. My my other most foundational Star Wars memory was playing the MMO Star Wars Galaxies, which was sort of the Star Wars answer to World of Warcraft. Oh, cl- cl- yep, classic. Yeah, I lived on that game. <laughs> 
for two years. I had more social experiences and special friendships and memories on Star Wars Galaxies than I did in my school. And that takes place in the original trilogy, but I was doing that with my friends whom we basically all sat around all day working on like Old Republic fan fiction. I just like, I think Star Wars is really about the people who you do it with <laughs> and you really form your identity as such. So a lot of my relationships were formed around the prequel trilogy and just enjoying it. But I will concede always the original trilogy is the best trilogy. And I, I really distinguish that from favorite and best. <laughs> the prequels are my favorite, but the original trilogy are obviously the best, the best of Star Wars that it has ever offered. So I try to be honest about those two things. I can appreciate that. But yeah, as someone who I, th I think most of my friends now are more prequel trilogy people and so i think for a long time i was that oh the the prequel the prequels suck oh they're they're awful yeah. like it, it's taken me a long time but i've come around to i i see the beauty in them now i will never enjoy them as much but having talked to so many people over the past 10 years or so who were such prequel fans i i can see the beauty in them what makes them special even if i'm never going to cross over to that side of things yeah, I think a, probably a huge part of my political identity is also formed in lashing against what you call negative polarization. So a lot of American politics is based off of not what are you for, but who are you against? Mm -hmm. And I, I grew up a Republican. That was my first sort of you know political persuasion. And I just remember when I actually then spent time with Republicans and, and went to Republican meetings and did clubs and stuff like that. It made me less Republican because I just really hate sitting around with people and there being such clear agreement about how awful everybody is and but nothing's really bad about you and i would just i would sit in these these environments and i go maybe i'm not a republican maybe i'm maybe i'm something else because this is exhausting just spending all of our time hating the democrats and i think like the star wars fandom debates the negative polarization towards the prequel trilogy by slightly older fans so like gen x fans and even boomer fans when the prequel fans were coming out radicalized me into just <laughs> not just liking them but loving them <laughs> or i'm just like these people like are losing sleep over how much they dislike these movies, it kind of makes me like it more. <laughs> and so, and so now I'm a libertarian yep. because it just because it just makes people so mad when you won't join their team. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So something else I want to ask you about before we dive into some politics of Star Wars stuff. You have a book coming out in December. Yeah, um, yeah. How the Force Can Fix the World. How Can the Force Fix the World? Oh, gosh. A couple more trilogies might might be needed to, to actually do it. But no, so the book is called How the Force Can Fix the World, and the subtitle is still coming together. We're, we're workshopping it right now. But it's it's basically a book about the key seven principles of Star Wars that could not only make, if you took them as a way to live, your life better, make you happier, but also make our societies, our politics more harmonious and constructive. So it's looking at everything that I sort of see going wrong in the world right now, everything that is sort of broken in our morality and our consciousness and saying, all right, 
like we used to sort of have in, in the Western world, we used to have Judeo-Christian values and philosophy to sort of tie society together with sort of common stories, similar origin stories, a sense of where we go after death, right? Like that used to be a huge foundational thing for life in America. You can say that it's right or wrong. You can say that you don't like that, but I think that is obviously true. That is really going away super fast. And the only thing that we have filling that space is political identity and falling into tribes of Team Red versus Team Blue for all-out warfare over the future of civilization. And it is awful to live in. I don't know if you've turned on the news, but it's, it's just ugly and exhausting and nobody's happy. I love Star Wars. Star Wars is not just movies to me. And they're not a religion for me necessarily, but like I take them seriously. When I watch these movies... I don't just go, ah, George Lucas is maybe making a suggestion that we try to live this way, or maybe that we try to abstain from from things like fear and anger. But like, obviously, this is true. We should want to to live this way and live the way Star Wars might want us to live. I just see nothing wrong with it. So this book is about looking at Star Wars as a guide for living. And if you are going to be in a world where religion is not tying sort of your life together. Why not Star Wars? (laughs) And uh, that strikes some people as a little bit odd, but I think most people get it. Star Wars, like we talked about in the very beginning of the show here, people understand the way that Star Wars frames morality, frames decision-making, frames good versus evil, and the struggle, and sometimes the gray area in between. And I find it to be really constructive. So I am working my way through that book. It's due in May to the publisher, and it'll be on your Barnes and Nobles and Amazon stores in December. Excellent. I'm looking forward to it. Good luck as you continue on with it. You know, I, I just had a thought as you were talking about this, kind of the idea, and I, and I think there is something to this that, you know, the United States, we've kind of lost a larger cultural unity, something to kind of tie yeah. the ties together. And I think about, I've actually been talking about this a lot in a class I'm teaching this semester. I think about kind of Europe as it transitioned from kind of the medieval era to the modern era and kind of the way prior to the Reformation, you see kind of this one version of Christianity is sort of uniting the peoples of Europe. And that is kind of their primary identity. And post-Reformation, as that collapses, you see kind of the church losing its influence, you see that identity holding less value. In its wake, what you see is sort of nationalism taking its place. You really don't see the rise of nationalism in Europe until Christianity, until religion as a unifying identity is sort of on its way out. And then we get something new and it oftentimes proves to be much more vicious, much more brutal and leads to a lot of conflict. Not that you know, Christianity and the church didn't cause its own own problems. But you do see the rise of this new identity, which is much more divisive. It's, it becomes less, you know, we, we Europeans have this common identity. It becomes, we have separate identities and it's to some degree framed as who are we and who are we not? Who is not us? It sounds like you're arguing we're facing kind of a similar thing in the United States right now. And Star Wars could be kind of the new unifying thing. So I am arguing that we definitely have that problem. I think what I'm trying to be realistic about regarding Star Wars is Star Wars is falling into those things, those (laughs) divisions, those all against all tribal warfare elements. I mean, you can't deny it. I mean, you look online at like the Last Jedi discourse. The Last Jedi discourse is a proxy battle for larger societal splits and culture wars that we're having. Not necessarily team red versus team blue but like 
I don't know, just sort of status quo kind of people, conservative minded people, not necessarily in the political sense, but like slow down the, the, the rate of change type of people versus societal progressives. Like Star Wars is getting gobbled up by those things. And I think that that's really unfortunate. I actually don't view the stories and the material of Star Wars as guilty of doing that. But the way that fans are receiving it and digesting what happens in Star Wars is being filtered through culture war. And it is being filtered through that bigger problem. So can Star Wars be the commons again? I don't know. When I left the theater for Rise of Skywalker, I had just finished the book proposal. So I had just finished drafting exactly what the book was going to look like so that I could go find a publisher for it. And that movie knocked the wind out of me for like four or five months because I disliked it so much. <laughs> I, I was just sad as a Star Wars fan. I was like, this isn't good. If I'm writing this book called How the Force Can Fix the World, how can I do it if I thought this was a disaster? And that was hard to swallow. But I think still, if we want to think not of ourselves as part of collectives, but as individuals, Star Wars is still a good guide for how to live and structure your life so that you can have the kind of political associations, relationships, and life that brings meaning to you rather than structuring everything around what side are you on, empire or rebel? I actually think that's probably the wrong way to live. So long, long way to answer that question. <laughs> is there any one character you can think of that sort of exemplifies kind of this message that kind of lives the way you think Star Wars kind of can teach us to, to live? Like who is, who is your model for living kind of a healthy political and social life? Well, I don't have one necessarily. I mean, when you talk to sort of the individualist and, and you know, you get into the libertarian community, they always kind of go back to Han Solo, right? Because he's, <laughs> of, of course. He's, he's the rogue. He lives for himself. He's, he's making a living, but he also has a heart and he makes good choices in the end. But you can't make Han Solo do anything. You have to compel him morally to join your cause. And I remember being in a conversation with a progressive Star Wars fan. And I, and I was kind of talking about why libertarians kind of always look at Han Solo as like the perfect libertarian ideal. And their response was something along the lines of, well, that's not true. He, he joins the rebellion when they need him most at the end of A New Hope. You know, he shows up to help blow up the Death Star and he brings the Millennium Falcon to the fight. You know, that's what we believe in. That's what liberals believe in, helping one another. And I just kind of laughed because I was like, this is kind of what the big political divide is really about. Like the left think their entire ideal structure is just about helping people. It's, it's just about, are you a good person? Well, that means you're liberal. And if you are more of the libertarian persuasion, you go, no, it's about coercion. <laughs> it's about, do you make good choices uncoerced and coming to it on your own decision? And I went, I'm sorry, but Han Solo joined the rebellion and came to help Luke in his moment of need at the very end of A New Hope because he felt he needed to, that it was the right thing to do. The rebellion didn't say, 
well, you landed the Falcon in our base and we have a battle coming up in one hour and we need it and we're going to take it from you, you know, at gunpoint. We're going to eminent domain the Falcon. <laughs> right. Like they they didn't coerce him. He chose to do it because he wanted to affiliate himself with the rebels. And in Solo, they kind of set this up. Like he's starting to really get warm to the idea that the galaxy is an ugly place and that he might have a role in helping make it better. So that's kind of where I come to is like, Good politics are based on not coercing people to do the thing you want. But Qui-Gon Jinn to me is also kind of like one of those heterodox thinkers. And you sort of pick up on this in the, the prequel trilogy is that he's like really not on board with the dogma of the Jedi. And it is his ability to reject Jedi dogma that allows him to transcend into life after death. It's one of those things that as Star Wars fans, we sometimes miss in the chronology but the ability to be a force ghost and live on after death is completely new in the Star Wars universe timeline. It was unlocked by Qui-Gon. No one had done it before. And he was the guy to do it and then share it with Yoda, to share it with Obi-Wan, to share it with Luke. And he did that by not being a dogmatic Jedi. And I actually really appreciate that about his character. <laughs> I do love that. And I, and I have to say, though, I, I am annoyed at the way episode three handles that. And I think I can't blame fans for forgetting this or overlooking it sometimes because I, I feel like episode three really did. It kind of they kind of gloss over it. It really is. They like make this, it really hard to understand. Yeah, it is this yeah. it is this 30 second bit of exposition. Oh, by the way, you know, you're, you're I heard from Obi-Wan, your old That's master is, is back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have you seen the Clone Wars? I dabbled in it. I never really got too into it. So I'm currently working on my chapter right now on redemption. And it, it all goes back to this, which is how are you redeemed in Star Wars? How are you redeemed in the real world? And the final three episodes of season six of the Clone Wars, if you don't want to watch any of the Clone Wars, fine, but go watch the last three episodes of season six. And it explains how Qui-Gon unlocked this power and what happened when he shared it with Yoda initially, because Yoda was still serving in the Jedi Council when he first heard from Qui-Gon. And he thought he had lost his mind. He heard from Qui-Gon and he said, this is impossible. This doesn't happen. There is no life after death. And Qui-Gon was like, you are not going crazy. This is real. Yoda still did not believe it. And he had himself medically tested to make sure he wasn't senile. And the Jedi Order, Mace Windu and Ki-Adi Mundi, they almost had him like institutionalized because they didn't believe this. So like the Jedi don't even believe in the full power of the force, perhaps to have you live after death. But by Revenge of the Sith, what we see on screen is that Yoda had accepted this and he had not only accepted it, he had learned from Qui-Gon how to achieve this power himself. So Qui-Gon, great as a character, the person who kind of questions dogma, who actually seeks out new knowledge, and also the person that kind of brings along the later heroes of, mm -hmm. the, of the original trilogy. I really do like that. Yeah, he unlocks the ability. And in short, what we learn about the ability to become a force ghost, manifest yourself after death, is the kind of Carl Jung idea of conquering your shadow self, that dark side that we all have within us that we know is there, but some of us keep it at arm's length and some of us embrace the shadow self. The Sith are all about embracing your id. They're about embracing your passions. Everything you want, everything your little devil on one shoulder says you should do, the Sith say do it because that makes you more powerful. The Jedi choose abstention. They choose to starve the shadow self 
and not acknowledge some of the things that might lead you astray. That's why they keep love at arm's length, because love and attachment in the Buddhist tradition will only produce certain amounts of unending suffering, which is life, right? Like that's part of life. What Qui-Gon learned from these things called the guardians of the wills was that acknowledging both your shadow self and knowing what is truly inside of you and then choosing not to embrace it is what allows you to ascend to that life after death. But the Jedi don't allow themselves to know the shadow. They hide from it at all turns. Instead of embracing love and then learning how to not have love destroy your life, they just choose not to love, (laughs) which means you can never know the pain, which means you can never in the Jedi or in the, the Force tradition experience life after death. So it's a really neat lesson. And Qui-Gon was the one who helped crack that open. This is actually something that has bothered me over time as we got in the prequels and then later stuff, and we've built up the mythology around the Jedi more. It always has kind of bugged me a little bit that for these sages who are all about wisdom and they talk about balance and courage and facing fears and so on, they seem to be very much the orthodox ones, at least very much uninterested in exploring the idea of balance or looking at the other side of themselves and don't seem to have the courage to do those things, except for your Qui-Gon Jinns or your Jolie Bindos and yeah. people like that. Yeah, they're, they're not invested in the idea of balance. You know, the whole idea of uh, the prophecy of a chosen one who will bring balance to the force. I just kind of like, you have to wonder if they really sat down and thought about what does balance mean? And are we a force of balance? Because, you know, the Jedi are entangled with the most powerful government in the galaxy, the Republic, and basically enforcing the light side of the force institutionally on everybody and keeping the dark at bay. Like the idea that the Sith, the practitioners of the force, their alter egos, sort of their counterweights have been extinct for a millennia. You call that balance? (laughs) And then like one Sith shows up on your radar, Darth Maul, and you're like, this is a crisis. The Sith cannot be allowed to exist. Nobody can practice the dark side of the force. And I get why they do it. Like the Sith are an all-consuming group. Their hunger has no bounds. So they're not looking to just have a little foothold in the galaxy where they can practice the dark side with the Night Sisters on Dathomir in complete seclusion. No, they want to conquer. They want to spread the darkness like a disease. And the Jedi understand that, and I get their concern, but their inability to touch the darkness themselves is what is really the problem. It's like a Puritan cult. And it leaves them hugely blind to their vulnerabilities and to their own failings in terms of keeping the force balanced and healthy in the galaxy. It does seem like the Jedi, just they look at the Sith and just immediately it's kind of, they go paradox of tolerance. You know, we, <laughs> yeah. we, can't, we, can't, we can't tolerate these guys at all or else they're going to wipe us all out. And yeah, the Sith are, are evil, but don't you want to hear a little bit of what they have to say? Don't you want to understand the ideology at all so you can understand what they're talking about and maybe understand yourself a little better? It is kind of depressing, which it leads me into kind of a larger question I wanted to ask, and this is something I've been thinking about. I've done another episode on the Jedi, and I think this is another one of those generational things. Depending on when you jumped into the Star Wars universe, you're going to have a different answer, but are the Jedis the heroes of Star Wars, or are they villains, or are they something in between? What is the role of the Jedi as a force kind of in the Star Wars universe? 
Well, you know, the, the old school contrarian view, I think when the prequels were coming out, it was like commentators kind of started talking about like, oh, the Jedis aren't heroes. Actually, they're the bad guys. Just like how you had this sort of contrarian commentary about how the Empire are actually good because they're just trying to keep the galaxy together and the rebels are terrorists. So Star Wars fans love to kind of play that game with who's good and who's bad. But I will say like the Jedi are heroes. The Jedi are heroes. They are champions of strong and virtuous ideals. But the important thing for anyone to understand is that heroes are not pure. Heroes are people. Heroes have blind spots. They're vain in some cases. It's okay to have heroes and it's okay to say the Jedi are champions of general good, but you can't write a blank check to anybody. And the Jedi, with all their good intentions to try to keep the galaxy ordered, safe, and just, I mean, how good are they if they go to Tatooine and they have no interest in ending slavery on that planet because it's a local matter? You know, that just, are they really champions of justice or are they just enforcers for the Republic? The thing that we all have to grapple with are our good intentions versus how we actually practice them. And the Jedi are just a, a group that I think want things to be as good as possible, but are not invested in a higher good. They're invested in order, which is not actually the ideal end, if it will. I think this is why I know I was initially, like way back when the prequels came out, kind of depressed seeing their portrayal because it felt like the view of the Jedi went from the mythologized Arthurian knight to now the Jedi are very much more like the actual historical knights of Europe. Like you, if you grow, if you grow up watching <laughs> yeah. the original trilogy, there are these lone noble warriors who travel the galaxy, joining noble causes and saving princesses and slaying monsters. It's all very nice. And if you grow up with that, you love that idea. And then you watch the prequels and like, no, these guys kind of have political power and they yeah. seek to, they seek to enforce the status quo to kind of maintain the government that supports them and that they support. And their power kind of derives from the fact that they have military might. They have a means to use violence against the Republic's enemies to the point where clearly the Republic depends on them to some degree until we get the clone army. The Republic is largely dependent on the Jedi as a military force. And it's much more, oh yeah, the, the Jedi, they were kind of just the Knights of Europe. They had weapons and the, the, yep. and the government kind of uses them. And political power. I'm I'm not a big fan of fairy tales. And I think it's just like that idealism thing that I'm just not very interested in. It's why, you know, when The Last Jedi came out, not not my favorite Star Wars movie by a long shot, but I was not offended by the idea of Luke being a jaded slob <laughs> living <laughs> living in a retreat on this island. It, like it hurts so many people. They're like, that was my Luke Skywalker. And I'm just like legends are not real <laughs> they're just people and people have like pits that they they eventually fall into what defines us is what do we do when we ruin things how do we try to correct them i think those are the best stories and you know the jedi order was wrong-headed but what yoda started to do in its collapse the self-reflection the search for the next step in knowledge to make sure that the tradition is carried, which was tackling hubris between himself, between Obi-Wan, between Luke, having people face their darkness rather than just suppress it. That was good. And that was eventually a growing moment for practitioners of the light side of the force. So it, it all matters like 
what do we do when we realize our heroes are not a, are not all that pure? I've always been interested by that idea. So the Jedi being flawed is something I find exciting. Another good lesson to take away from Star Wars and in, into the real world. Don't put too much faith in the charismatic hero. Our leaders are flawed, as impressive as they may seem. Yep. I don't believe them. Not for one second. <laughs> <laughs> So kind of shifting gears entirely here, Star Wars and its portrayal of democracy versus authoritarianism. How is democracy portrayed in Star Wars and how does it portray kind of the rise of dictators? And I, get, and I think this is, again, something that we get, you know, very different portrayals depending on which trilogy you're looking at, where you come in. But kind of what do you take away from Star Wars in terms of its messages for democracy and the dangers of authoritarianism? There's so many things <laughs> that you can take away from Star Wars about democracy, authoritarianism. I think a lot of the conversation tends to go towards George Lucas's primary message. Well, secondary message in Star Wars, the prequels, which is like kind of giving into special interests, corporatism, kind of the weirdness of, you know, corporate entities like the Trade Federation having representation in the Galactic Senate, power hungry figures like Palpatine who are always looming in the background, willing to either create or seize on a crisis in order to grab power. That's an historic lesson that anyone who's studied 20th century history at the least knows to be true. Like this is just what happens in democracies is that you don't elect someone to be a dictator. You just, they take the powers that you give them. A democracy is given away, not taken away. That is something that I think is always at the forefront of the debate. What I have been zeroing in lately as the most important issue is that we are not inherently, as a people, human beings, built for democracy. <laughs> that is not the natural state of affairs. The natural state of human life is just been like appointing strong men to like lead us through the wilderness and help us not be eaten alive by the other tribe or by the wolves. And democracy, this entire project that's been going on for 300 years in the West, like this is an experiment in starving ourselves of those instincts. And it hurts. It's painful. It's mired in, in corruption. It's mired in stagnation. Things not getting done when you want them to get done because we've chosen not to fulfill those desires. And Anakin Skywalker, episode two, in the field with Padme on Naboo, when they are having their little romantic picnic and they're talking about politics, I can't remember the exact lines, but Anakin's like, oh, you know, I just, the, the system should work this way. Everybody should get together and discuss what's in the best interest of the people and make a decision. <laughs> and Padme's like, but this is what we already do. This is what is hard. Most people don't agree. That's the problem. And then Anakin says, well, they should be made to. Who's going to make them do it? You? Well, not me, but, but someone, someone wise. <laughs> and I think my realization and the Trump years kind of is what helped me realize this is that your neighbors may say they like democracy, but you can't assume they really do. You can't assume that most people in American life, when they pay lip service to checks and balances and they pay homage to the constitution and, and the things that kind of keep American life in check, that they actually really want those things if they could choose. We're not democratic creatures. Like that's not what we're built to do. So I've started to look at Anakin as like the common man. And we have to keep those instincts in check. 
And our institutions, our documents, our laws are the only things that keep that wolf at bay. What do you think of that? Do you think I'm crazy? (laughs) As you're saying this, I have to say the first thing that occurred to me is thinking back, I think for years, I would watch those lines with Anakin and Padme. Yeah, that scene in the field and a couple others. And I think for a long time, I thought you know, this dialogue is so over the top. It's, it's ridiculous. It's, it's just, come on, no one, no one talks like that. This is just a straw man, authoritarian. And then I heard undergrads say almost the exact same thing. And I've seen people on Twitter say almost the exact same thing. I've seen, you know, some of the, the crazy or QAnon people yeah. just, just waiting for the military to take over, cheering the exactly. idea that we're going to have a military dictatorship, seeing people on the left, you know, kind of going pretty much full Stalinist in some cases. And it's kind of convinced me, no, maybe the Anakin dialogue isn't as ridiculous as it sounds. So I do think you're onto something there. I I am depressed the extent to which that dialogue captures a feeling that a lot of people seem to have today. Yeah, I, I the past couple of years have just woken up something pretty nasty in the American body politic. And it's it's both in the Republican Party and then to the left, the reaction to it has also kind of curdled this interest in, well, things are getting extreme. We're going to have to get extreme if we're going to get out of this. You know, we need our own, we need our own demagogues and despots to come up and fight, fight the dragon of the other side. Like the politics are getting more and more extreme. And the willingness by, I think, everyday people that I talk to is just getting more and more present for the idea that like, you know, maybe this whole like Congress thing just isn't, isn't working. Like we need to resolve issues X, Y, and Z, and we need to resolve them now. And there you have the imperial presidency. And the, the sad truth is that Congress is very happy to go along with the imperial presidency. And they have been for a hundred years as they've been giving the president more and more power and stepping away from their responsibilities of managing the purse, managing the right to declare war, because they don't want to do those things. They would like to maybe just have power and be institutionally connected in Washington, D.C. and not lose an election. And there you have just sort of this quiet rise of these things we call presidents, but I'm just starting to wonder if they're like emperors who we just allow to have up to eight years at a time, which is um, a scary place to be. And that's, that's the thing in Star Wars that is just always worrying me is, are we Anakin, are our neighbors Anakin? So something to think about. <laughs> kind of a depressing, but very realistic note to leave off on. There is definitely something to this and it is scary right now. Well, not the most positive note to leave off on, but very timely. Stephen, thank you so much again for taking the time to speak with me. Love to hear your insights. I hope, you. you'll, I hope you'll be a guest again sometime. I'd love to have you back in the future. I got plenty more Star Wars topics I'd love to cover with you at some point. I've got plenty more Star Wars takes, so I would, uh, I would love to do it. And folks can follow me on Twitter in the meantime at Stephen underscore Kent 89 and check out my new YouTube show at youtube.com slash rightlyaj. Uh, and then my final plug I'll make before we round <laughs> out is if you want to follow what's going on with my book, subscribe to my newsletter at politicizeme.substack.com. And that's where I will be letting people know about when the book comes out for pre-order here in the next two months. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you, and may the force be with you. May the force be with you. And that's it for this week. Thanks again very much to Stephen Kent for joining me. Do check out his podcast and his new YouTube show, and keep an eye out for his upcoming book, Pre-Orders Available, this summer. And as always, you can follow me on Twitter at Social Sci-Fi Show, 
on Facebook at Social Science Fiction Podcast, on Instagram at social underscore sci underscore fi, and you can email me at socialsciencefictionshow at gmail.com. New episode coming up next week. Lots of great topics to cover this year, and hopefully some more awesome guests. Thanks for listening. See you then. 